Well, our passage this morning is in 1 Peter again, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5. If you uh, have a Bible, then uh, please turn there. And if you don't, we have some extras that are uh, uh, called Pew Bibles, and you'll find them up in front in one of the racks under the seat in front of you. You'll probably need it. It'll be helpful to you to use as we're doing our study today. So 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're actually going to begin at verse 19 in chapter 4. So let me begin by reading through the passage, and then we'll talk about it together. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. Peter's writing, and he says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, it doesn't take long to read through this passage before you kind of come to the conclusion this is about church leaders. Uh, In fact, this passage is one of the half a dozen or so passages in the New Testament uh, that uh, are the primary focus uh, is on church leadership. And there are a couple of ways we can approach a passage like this. One would be to just take a surface look at it and just to see what it has to say about leaders in general or leadership in general. And when you do, you see a couple of things real quickly, don't you? You see, for example, Oh, the use of the terms here. Notice in chapter 5, verse 1, to the elders. Uh, That's the translation of a Greek word, presbyter, elder, presbyter. That refers to not necessarily the chronological age of the leader. More likely, it refers to the spiritual maturity of a leader, although the two sometimes overlapped. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, be shepherds or pastors. So elders, presbyters, are also shepherds, pastors. The terms mean the same thing. There's no major difference between them. And then down in chapter 5, verse 2, the next phrase there where he says, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them. That word watching is the word we get our word bishop from, episkopos in the New Testament. So it doesn't matter what you call this group of leaders. You can call them elders or presbyters. You can call them shepherds or pastors. You can call them bishops or episkopos. Whatever you call them, it all refers to basically the same concept. It's the concept of church leadership. And I don't think it really matters what expression, what term we use. Different churches have different words that they like to latch on to. Our, our favorite term here is the word pastor, but it includes all those other terms as well. I think Peter's reminding us of that here in this, in this passage. Now, it also tells us of, of this broad group of leaders, it tells us what their primary responsibilities are. If you look again at verse 2, Paul says, or Peter says to this group, he says, Be shepherd of God's flock that is under your care. Uh, One of the first things that a shepherd, elder, pastor, bishop is to do is to recognize that the sheep are to be cared for. He's to provide care for them. 
I think Peter is remembering back to the words that Jesus uh, spoke to him. Remember when Peter failed, he denied the Lord three times? And after his resurrection, Jesus came back to Peter and he restored him uh, to fellowship. And in that process, he asked him three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, you know, Lord, I love you. And each time Peter said that, then Jesus said, well, if you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, care for my sheep. If you love me, feed my sheep. And I don't think Peter ever forgot that. That's one of his primary responsibilities as a leader in God's congregation, as a leader in the local church. It's always to care for the sheep. The other part of the leader's primary responsibility is in that second phrase, watching over them that we've already looked at. I like to define that in terms of creating the environment that provides the best opportunity for the sheep to prosper. That's what it means to watch over them. It doesn't necessarily mean to be a dictator. It doesn't mean to be a ruler. It just means to organize, to structure, to plan, to set goals, to do those things at a leadership level that always keeps its eye on the sheep and what creates that best environment for the sheep to grow and to be fluffy little things and, and just to prosper. That's the second part of a leader's responsibility. So Peter really is saying some significant things about church leadership here. But I don't think that's the primary reason he has included the passage in this book. Remember, the book of 1 Peter is basically about suffering. And when you look back at chapter 4, verse 19, there is that word again, so those who suffer according to God's will. Suffering is in the context. And then when you come to chapter 5, verse 1, now I'm using the New International Version, and the modern translations tend to smooth things out so we can read it easily. But in order to do that, sometimes they'll skip over a word or they'll move over a word. There should be a, a word like therefore or so that begins chapter 5, verse 1. It should be uh, those who suffer according to God's will commit themselves to the Lord, therefore or so... I have this to tell you about elders. In other words, there's a connection between suffering and what elders are to do. The other tip-off that provides a connection here is in that expression in chapter 5, verse 3, where he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples. Elders are to put themselves in this context of suffering and then to ask, now what does it mean to care for what does it mean to create an environment for the sheep when they are suffering in such a way that they can see the example that we're providing for them? In other words, Peter has more in mind than just you know, rigid teaching about what it means to be a, a leader or an elder or a bishop or anything like that. He has a very practical intent in mind. So I think it's, it's legitimate to, to use this passage to back up and, and have a broader perspective on it to give us a, a clearer understanding of what it means to live in the context of suffering. And in particular, I think this passage is, is helping us to develop a question that goes something like this. When you or others around you are suffering and your lives overlap, do you know circles of concern? 
you and if you have a husband or wife and then you have children and maybe friends and relatives and connections and and you find out that when difficulties and problems and suffering comes it never just is lonely is it it never just comes to you it always impacts those people around you your circle of concern so you may not be an elder you may not be a leader but you certainly have a circle of concern. People that are going to be impacted by your suffering or you'll be impacted by theirs. And so Peter is asking the question, when you or others around you, those whose lives overlap with you, are suffering or experiencing difficulties or problems or trials, what should you do? I think that's a good way to approach this passage. And I, when I look at it from that perspective, I see that there are, Peter's giving us four pieces of advice. When life doesn't go my way, when I'm struggling, when I'm having problems, when issues are just around me every day, and maybe I'm even going through some suffering, the first thing Peter tells us is in chapter 4, verse 19, those who suffer according to God's will, see it, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Commit yourself to the Lord and do good. There's a passage in the Old Testament. It's one I like. Uh, it's in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. And it reminds us that the life of a disciple, the life of a follower of Christ, isn't always easy, which is what Peter is telling us too. And it says, in the life of a disciple, sometimes there are going to be dark times. There are going to be problems. There are going to be hard spots that we're going to face. Uh, Isaiah predicts that time in the life of uh, the Old Testament people of God. He talks about a time in history when many will fall, he says, and be broken. And, and they'll be snared and they'll be captured. And he's talking about life turning against them. And then right after that passage, he, he gives this wonderful statement of what it means to be a disciple. You see it here? He says, even when that happens, even when life turns south, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced a time when, you know, your prayers don't seem to be answered? You can't seem to get a solution. God seems to be hiding his face from you. He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the people of God, the descendants of Jacob, and I will trust in him anyway. In other words, a disciple is someone who trusts in the Lord even in the dark and continues to do the good that he knows he ought to do. Well, how does that work? In the kingdom of God as a party, uh, Tony Campolo tells of a time in his own life when things weren't going his way. Uh, he had been traveling on a trip, and uh, his plane, his flight had been canceled, and he found himself uh, in this strange place at a, at a strange time. And, and uh, well, he says, says, my first day there, uh, I was suffering from jet lag. Couldn't sleep. It's about 3.30 in the morning, and I was hungry, and I began to walk up and down the streets in the middle of the night looking for a place to eat. You know, he was really just looking for somewhere to hang out because he was tired and, and alone and frustrated. And at last, he found this sleazy diner, a place that you wouldn't go into you know, in the daylight, but here it was at night, and he found this diner, and, and he walked in. He said the few people in there were obviously down on their luck, and he was wondering if he'd made a really, really bad mistake when all of a sudden the door flung itself open and half a dozen ladies of the evening came walking in the door. 
And real quickly, the place was filled, and uh, the talk began to be boisterous and loud and a little bit crude around the edges. And, and yet in the midst of all of it, Campolo heard one woman say, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm going to be 30. Nothing going his way. Things aren't going right. He picks up on this casual comment. What would it mean to do good, to commit your life to the Lord in a circumstance like this? Well, as he heard it, he uh, waited for them to leave, and when they left, uh, Campolo uh, called the guy over behind the counter to him and said, does that woman come in here very often? You mean Agnes, he said? Oh, yeah, Agnes is in here every night. And then sort of suspiciously, why do you ask? Well, uh, I heard her say that tomorrow's her birthday. I got an idea. Why don't we throw Agnes a birthday party tomorrow night? He says, and I'll, I'll pay. And so the guy behind the counter yells to his wife, and he says to her, hey, what do you think about giving Agnes a birthday party? This guy over here says he'll pay for it if we do that. And wife says, well, if he's serious, I'm all for it. You know, Agnes is basically a nice person, and nobody ever does anything nice for her. So should they make the arrangements? And then the next night, sure enough, 2.30 in the morning, Campolo arrives with his arms full at the diner. He's got all these decorations. He's got one of these big banners he wants to put up. He's got a, a birthday cake that he's, that he's picked up at a local store during the day. And when word got on the street that, that he was really serious about doing all this, well, you can guess every streetwalker in town showed up in that little diner that night. They just wanted to see what was happening there. He says... His words, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and one Christian. <laughs> At 3.30 in the morning, Agnes swung the door open and she walked in and everybody shouted, Happy birthday! She said, I've, Campolo says, I've never seen a person so stunned, so surprised, so shaken. And they had to actually lead her to the counter. And then they all sang that happy birthday song to her. And, and then as she was just almost on the verge of tears as a result of all this, then they pull out the birthday cake. And she just lost it then. And she just openly began to sob. Harry, the counter guy, said, blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles or we'll have to blow them out for you. And Agnes couldn't blow them out. She was too emotional to do that. So Harry did. He blew out the 30 candles that were on this cake for her. Then he handed her a knife. And he said, cut the cake, Agnes, cut the cake. We all want a piece of your birthday cake. And Agnes looked down at the cake and looked at the group and looked at Harry. And she said, look, Harry, if it's all right, I'd like to keep the cake for a while. You know, not eat it right away. Would that be okay? Sure, Harry said. It's okay to keep the cake, Agnes. It's yours. And she got up off the stool, and she picked up the cake, and she walked out the door, and she left, and the room was absolutely silent. And Campola was saying, what do you do at a time like that? What do you do? And he said, the only thing I could think of is, this, hey, let's pray for Agnes. What a picture, he says. Here it is. It's 3.30 in the morning, a lone Christian leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of down-and-outers in a diner in a run-down neighborhood. He said, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. And so Campolo prayed for Agnes, and he prayed for her salvation, and he prayed for her life to be changed, and he prayed for God to bless her. And when he had finished, Harry leaned over the counter and he said, Hey, you never told me you were a preacher. 
what kind of church do you belong to anyhow? And Campolo says, you know, it was one of those times when you know, the, words, the right words just come, the right words, the right time. He says, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for forgotten people at 3.30 in the morning. And I thought, what a wonderful statement. Here's a man that could have gotten lost in his own issues, could have grumbled and complained and had problems. Instead of doing that, he just committed his way to the Lord and found a way to do good. I think that's Peter's first point. Life doesn't always go the way we want it to go, does it? But when it doesn't go the way we want it to go, when we're struggling, when we stumble, when we fall, when we suffer, Peter's first word of advice to us is to commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good, to trust in him, even in the dark. Peter's uh, second uh, piece of advice to us is in chapter 5, verse 1. At least that's, well, that's where I see it. It says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Now, that's really interesting to me. Peter is saying, you're elders. I'm writing this letter to tell you about what elders are supposed to do. But I want you to know that I'm an elder, too. Peter knew who he was, and his identity led him to identify himself with other elders in the church. But it's really fascinating to me that the Apostle Paul, also at the end of his life, also facing suffering, makes a similar kind of statement. He says this he says in, chapter, in Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, he says, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher, and that's why I'm suffering. Now, what's missing in that statement? Paul doesn't call himself an elder. He says, I'm a teacher and an apostle and a teacher. That's who I am. And by serving God in this way, that's the best way for me to address suffering. Peter says, I am an elder, and I identify with you as elders. And by addressing, by serving God in this way, that's how I best address suffering. And so, you know, my principle is basically this, know who you are, and once you find out who you are, follow Christ in that way. Don't try to be something you aren't. When suffering comes, it's vital to know who we are. Pastors uh, and teachers have uh, made this point in, in numbers of ways over the years, but one of my favorites is uh, by uh, a preacher, uh, Ray Pr Pritchard, who's pastored for something like almost 40 years. Uh, he's now president of Keep Believing Ministries, and he explains the principle like this. He says, down south there's a parkway. It's called the Natchez Trace. Now, a trace, this Natchez Trace, and maybe some of you have been down there, maybe some of you have seen it, it actually started out as a, a little animal trail. Animals would follow this trail, and they would wear the path down. And then later on in American history, Indians came along, and they wore that path down, and it just became this familiar path. And then when the covered wagons came along, you know, they, they wanted to go south, they would follow the trail, and they would dig these big ruts in that trail. And those ruts down south were called traces and so the natchez trace well the natchez trace starts in nashville tennessee and ends up in natchez mississippi and in the old days people who wanted to go from nashville to natchez would just put their tra their uh, uh, wagon uh, wheels in that rut and and just follow that rut all the way for about 400 miles until they arrived at their destination ray pritchard says uh, i think that's a parable of the spiritual life. He says, you know what? 
Most days, he says, in the Christian life, nothing exciting happens, does it? He says 99% of the Christian life is just an ordinary, humdrum life. You get up, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you take care of the kids, you come home, you eat supper, you go to bed, get up the next day, and you do it all over again and again and again and again. He says, and sometimes you do that in the midst of difficulties and trials and maybe even intense suffering that might come your way. That's what life is. And then he asks the question, he says, what is God's will for you and for me in this dailiness of this discouraging sometimes overwhelming life. He says it's this, isn't it? Isn't it to get up each day and simply to do what we have to do? We do it cheerfully if we can. We do it grumpily if we must. But do it, he says, nonetheless. Doing God's will means staying in the traces day after day. Just do what God has given you to do. If you like it, that's great. If you don't like it, do it anyway. If you wish you were doing something else, grit your teeth and do it anyway. God blesses those people who do what they have to do each day and do it even though they might prefer to do something else. He said he's been a pastor for something like 40 years, and he's watched people who've tried to jump the traces, to get out of the traces, that they don't want to stay in the traces. He says it almost always ends up in disaster. He says one of the things he's learned is that if you stay in the traces, you may still have to face a difficult tomorrow, but at least you won't be ashamed of the choices you made today. So here he says, and you see the expression up here, stand firm. This is where endurance begins. Husbands, stand firm. Wives, stand firm. Parents, stand firm. Children, stand firm. Students, stand firm. Singles, stand firm. Whatever your station in life, whatever you're calling, whoever you are and wherever you are and whatever you are doing, if you don't do anything else, Pritchard says, stand firm. I think that's pretty good advice. When difficulties and problems and hardships and issues come our way, I think it's pretty good to use our gifts and talents to stand firm and to stay focused on Christ. The third thing Peter tells us in this passage, I find in verses, uh, the last part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3, where he starts talking about motivations and attitudes. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that under your care watching over them. Now here, here they come. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to do. That's an, that's an attitude. That's an attitude issue. You don't do it because you have to. You do it because you want to. You embrace it. You grab a hold of it. Watch out for that attitude, he says. And then there's a motivation issue. He says, not pursuing dishonest gain. You don't do it to gain something. Now, I thought about that this week. Why would gain come into the equation if I'm if I'm experiencing suffering, if I'm experiencing problems, isn't it basically because we begin to think to ourselves, if, if this is the only life I'm going to get, if this is all I'm going to get, I'm going to make sure it's not just a life that's going to be painful and suffering. I'm going to grab everything I can get out of life. I'm going to make the most of life. I'm going to have my bucket list, and I'm going to fill everything. I'm going to do all I want to do. 
And I'm not putting down having a bucket list. You may have one yourself. I don't know. But you hear what I'm saying. We begin to get greedy. We begin to try to grab life. We begin to grasp at life because it's, it, 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 we're afraid that we're going to lose something. And so Peter warns us not to do that. And then the other thing he says is uh, not only will we tend to grumble and not only we uh, maybe get greedy with it all, but then we start to do the self-glorification thing. And you know how that happens. We do start to lord it over people, don't we? You know, you know how it works. The boss yells at you. You go home and you yell at your wife. Your wife then yells at the kids and the kids kick the dog. You know how it works. Everybody gets impacted in their circle of concern because suffering hurts and we want somebody else to know how badly we're hurting i want you to know when i hurt and so i'm going to grumble at you so until you get the point or i'm going to make it clear to you that that i'm hurting paul says or peter says here watch your motivations watch your attitudes as i was thinking about this uh, section here uh, reminded me of a uh, of Chuck Swindoll, you know the the radio pastor Chuck Swindoll. Some of you have probably heard him. Chuck Swindoll, his confession several years ago. He said, "I found myself uh, at a time of my ministry getting testy, because I was even argumentative at times, to the point where my wife said I needed to think about how negative I'd become. Wives have a way of doing that, don't they, husbands? Uh, how negative I was becoming, and then she said I needed to do something about it. Okay." And being the pastor type that he was, you'll handle this in a different way, but being the pastor type that he was, he was used to writing things out. So he sat down and he write, wrote out for himself a, a, a statement on the importance of watching his attitude. Later, he says, I had no idea how God was going to use this testimony of mine in, in the lives of people. He says, I've come across it in the most amazing places all around the world. People seem to need, need to hear what I have to say. Well, here it is. This is what he said. He says, the longer I live, the more convinced I become that life is 10% what happens to us and 90% how we respond. I believe the single most significant decision, he writes, that I can make on a day-to-day -day basis is my choice of attitude. It's more important than my past, than my education, than my bankroll. It's more important than my successes or failures, fame or pain, and what other people think about me. It's more important than my circumstances and my position. Attitude keeps me going or cripples my progress. It alone fuels my fire or assaults my hope. When my attitudes are right, there's no barrier too high, no valley too deep, no dream too extreme, no challenge too great for me. That's an interesting statement. I think he's right. And I think that's what Peter is saying to us here. When life throws us a curveball, when things aren't going our way, isn't it true that it's really important for us to sit down and check, what were my motivations in the first place? And what are my attitudes? I need to deal with them in a Christ-like way. And then the fourth and final thing Paul said, or Peter says in this uh, verse 4, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, that's Jesus, who's also an elder. He says, when the chief shepherd appears, 
you, now here's the key word, will receive. You will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Peter's statement in light of the coming of Christ is a positive statement. Have you grabbed that? And Peter isn't the only one who does that. Paul does it in another uh, important passage uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He's also talking about the coming of Christ and, and the judgment seat of Christ that we hear about and preach about. He says, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness. And he will expose the motives of the heart. Now here's the phrase. At that time each will receive what? Their praise from God. Now there are so many people, Christians included, that are somewhat dreading the coming of Christ because they're afraid of all those mistakes and all those things they did wrong. And, and, and sometimes I've heard them talking about the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to be so ashamed when I'm there and I'm going to be wringing my hands and oh, if I'd just done this better and if I hadn't done that. And, and, and they just see the judgment seat of Christ as if this is, you know, I don't read the New Testament that way. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 is in the Bible, and it's very clear. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. None! And therefore, on the judgment day of Christ, all of those things that I'm so fretting over, that's all covered by the blood of Jesus. I just put it there and say, thank God. And then... <laughs> The grace of God reaches out to me and gives me this marvelous promise. At that time, each, not some, not many, each will receive their praise. It's going to be a time of glory and promise. And so why wouldn't we want Jesus to come back? And why wouldn't that give us you know, a, a, a motivation and inspiration for serving him wisely and well on planet Earth while we're still here. On Christmas Day in 1998, CNN broadcast Larry King's interview with Billy Graham, who was over 80 at the time. And King mentioned Graham's health problems that he had been having his Parkinson's disease, and he asked, how do you feel about the prospect of your death, Dr. Graham? And Billy Graham, I love this, he says, Oh, I'm not afraid to die. In fact, I'm looking forward to it. I wish that day would hurry up and get here. I'm not afraid to die, he says. In fact, I wish that day would hurry up and get here. And then Larry King asked him how he felt about having Parkinson's disease. And Graham replied, you know, it's been a wonderful experience when I look back over it. I believe the Lord's taught me many lessons, and I think he has many more that he can teach me through this disease. I'm thankful to God that he's led my trail this way. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that what Peter is telling us to do right here in light of the coming of Christ, to face it with joy and with hope because of Christ and what he's done? So you see, I, I think this passage does have a lot to tell us about what it means to be an elder. 
And I think elders ought to be examples of the kind of life that we've described here. But then I think we ought all to be. I think Peter is saying to all of us, anytime you're going through suffering, anytime life turns sour or south, when you have disappointments and problems and pain and things that you can't plow through, here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. And it will impact your very own circle of concern, your own flock, if you will. He says, commit your life to God and do good. He says, use your talents and gifts and stay focused on Christ. He says, watch your motivations and your attitude so very carefully, especially attitudes like grumbling and greediness and seeking personal glory. He says, be joyful and filled with hope. I love this passage. I think it really does help to know how to live in a time of suffering. Would you pray with me? Lord, I've got to confess to you that I don't handle life this way. I just have to confess to you this morning that when problems and difficulties and suffering and pain comes my way, Lord, I'm the first to, to react wrongly. Lord, I haven't even experienced the kind of suffering that some people in the congregation this morning have had to endure. I haven't even had those kinds of problems. And yet I'm guessing that they'll say the same thing that I'm saying in light of a passage like this. Lord, this is the way we want to live. And how we thank you that you've given us the ability to do that. How we thank you that you helped us to face suffering realistically. It doesn't just go away. And when it doesn't just go away, you teach us how to cope. And you stand alongside us in our coping. And you give us the ability to cope in a marvelous way. And even when we fail, you cover it all with the blood of Jesus, not to condemn, but to receive and to bless and to give praise at the judgment seat of Christ. Lord, it just makes me wonder if there's anybody here in the congregation this morning that doesn't know you, and if not, why not? Who would not want a life like that? And so, Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you touch their life and bring them into your kingdom and all of us closer to you in Jesus' name.